and good morning. You should turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew 19, verse 13. Then children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked them, but Jesus said, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. And behold, a man came up to him, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. And he said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man said, All these I have kept. What still do I lack? And Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and some, and come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to the disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, You who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or fathers or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Would you pray with me? Holy Spirit, we ask now that you would come. And you would make clear that you would speak to us through your word. We acknowledge that you are the one who inspired these words. And you are the one who has to illuminate them for us. So we ask that you would speak to us through your word this morning. Convict and convince that we need you, Jesus. And that you are enough for your glory. Amen. In 1971, the British comedy group Monty Python released a film based on a series of television, uh, a television series called Monty Python's Flying Circus. But the American release of the film took the title and now for something completely different due to a catchphrase which was used throughout the series. Wikipedia notes this, many of the early episodes of Monty Python's Flying Circus featured a sensible looking announcer played by John Cleese dressed in a black suit and sitting behind a wooden desk which, in turn, would be in some ridiculous location, such as behind the bars of a zoo cage or in mid-air being held aloft by small propellers. And he would turn to the audience and announce, and now for something completely different. And they'd launch the opening credits. But the phrase was also used in the middle of the show as a transition, that often it would be added to better explain the transition. For instance, and now for something completely different, a man with a tape recorder up his brother's nose. Why bring this up? 
Surely there have to be more edifying ways of introducing a sermon than Monty Python. Or are there? No, the real reason I bring this up is because we're going to deal with two pericopes. Pericope is a fancy word for little story. And we're dealing with these two pericopes here in Matthew chapter 19, which you might think, you might expect in the middle of them, John Cleese to pop up and say, and now for something completely different. Because at first glance, they don't look like they fit. They don't appear to have much cohesion, as it were. But my hope this morning is to show you that there really is a thread that runs through these two stories, and they they are intimately connected. To separate them would be to do mischief to the text, really. So we'll be looking at this, these two little pericopes under the heading Kingdom Righteousness. There might be a slide popping up showing the four points that we have for the sermon. If not, I'll read them off. The four points are this, the necessity of childlike faith, verses 13 through 15, the good and the commandments. 16 through 22, the impossibility of salvation, 23 through 26, and the disciples and the inheritance, 27 through 30. I'll repeat those as we go. But we'll kick off the first with the necessity of childlike faith. Look again at verses 13 through 15. Then children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people. But Jesus said, let the children come to me and do not hinder them, for such belongs, uh, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. Here we find, for the second time in two chapters, that Jesus uses small children as an illustration. The same thing happened back in chapter 18, verses 1 through 6, where the disciples are arguing about who is the greatest, and Jesus responds and says, unless you become like a child... Become like these children. In fact, you will never even enter into the kingdom of heaven. It's not a matter of being great. It's just you won't even enter into it unless you become like this child. Here we see children are being brought to Jesus by their parents. And the children are just along for the ride, as it were. In fact, it was common practice in Jesus' day for rabbis and teachers to lay their hands on children and pray for them. And that seems to be what's happening here. But the disciples rebuke the parents. We're not quite sure why. Maybe they think that Jesus is an uber rabbi at this point, and he doesn't need to do such things any longer. Whatever the reason, Jesus says, no, stop. Do not hinder them from coming. Let the children come to me. And he prays for them. And then our ESV says, to such uh, the kingdom of heaven belongs. Most other English translations say the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. Uh, The New Living Translation is actually very clear and helpful. It says, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to those who are like these children. The emphasis is not on children, but on those who are like children. That's the point. Not all children are included in the kingdom, but those who have childlike faith, those who have total dependence, they're the ones who are included. So this passage really has nothing to do with arguments regarding salvation of children, regarding inclusion or exclusion of children from the covenant, regarding baptism of infants or baptism of small children. That's not here. Many commentators have tried to argue that way, but that's just not what's going on. Jesus is using an illustration. So you can try and squeeze this text, but it doesn't quite fit. All that is being said here is Jesus welcomes children and he prays for them. He encourages them to come to him so that he can pray for them. 
But in the flow of this chapter, this illustration is actually, I'm going to argue, being used as a foil. You know what a foil is? A foil in in stories is where you set up one character and one story to intentionally give a stark contrast to the next story. It's a foil. It's, It's a setup. So this little thing with the children is a setup because here's the problem. It has been well said that a text without a context is a pretext for a proof text. Or to put it another way around, you can take just about any pericope, any little story, you can take just about any verse and kind of squish it and mold it to make it say whatever you want it to say. But this text only means what it means in the greater context. Which brings us to the second point. The good and the commandments, verses 16 through 22. One more time, 16 through 22. And behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. And he said to him, Which one? And Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man said to him, all these I've kept, what do I still lack? And Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went a face sorrowful, for he had great possessions. So one of the ways we can tell that these two pericopes form a foil, a contrast, is because of that second word there in our English translations of verse 16. And behold. Unfortunately, if you've read the Bible for any amount of time, you read that word and you don't think anything about it. You just think it's like biblish, you know, it's special Bible speak. It is, you know, behold. But in any other phase of life, if you came across a sentence and it said, and behold, you, you would assume the next words are either exalted poetry or an announcement of the apocalypse. Uh, just think about it. We don't really use that kind of language. Uh, you know, this is, this is the same thing that's happening in Shakespeare, but soft. What light from yonder window breaks? It's, it's an attention-grabbing word. In fact, linguists will tell you some words have no meaning. They, they don't actually carry a semantic meaning. Instead, they are function words. So they serve the purpose of directing you of guiding you, think of the word, and you're adding something on. Well, that's what's happening with this word, behold. It's a function word. It's meant to stop you in your tracks. It's meant to make you say, pay attention, listen up. As a matter of fact, one scholar has noted that in Matthew's gospel, his favorite word for grabbing people's attention is this word, behold. In Matthew's gospel, this calls your attention to something extraordinary that is about to happen. It's the same word that's used on the Mount of Transfiguration. When Jesus is up there, and in the narrative, all of a sudden says, Behold, Moses and Elijah show up. Meaning, what just happened? And then, behold, a voice from heaven spoke. So this word is calling your attention. The main point is now coming. This is what's going on. So that's the first thing we see. But it gets even more important in this. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell this same story, these same two stories together. But Matthew actually flips one piece of evidence in this text. See, if you go read Mark's account and you go read Luke's account, the young man will come to Jesus, but he's not called young. In in, in Luke's account, he's called the ruler. In Mark's account, he's just the wealthy man. But neither of them call him young. And as a matter of fact, in both of those accounts, when he says, when Jesus says, keep the commandments, both Mark and Luke say, 
his, the man's response is, I have kept them since I was young. But all of a sudden in Matthew's account, something's different. Matthew presses the fact that this man wasn't all that old. He was a young man. He says it twice. He was young. Why is he doing that? I think because he's trying to draw a contrast, a foil. He's showing you how these two stories fit together. So what we have to do then is we have to say that the plainest understanding of how these two stories fit together is this. That contrary to the absolute dependence of the children. Remember, the children didn't come to Jesus. They were brought to Jesus. This man comes. But here's the difference. This man comes saying, what must I do? Whereas the children are just along for the ride. The children are carried. They're brought. The man wants to do something. So at the simplest level, this is the contrast. Is that children know there's nothing they can bring. The, the children realize that they cannot feed, provide, protect themselves. I mean, they're just going where their parents go. So the emphasis then is on that contrast. Because the rich young man says he seeks to do. What must he do? So here, if you're going to apply this text to children then, here's what I'm going to suggest. We do so using the categories Jesus uses here. Is that, yes, of course we encourage young people to come. Yes, of course. You pray for them. You teach them. You train them. But that doesn't mean that they're automatically included in the kingdom. The rest of this passage goes on to say that salvation is of the Lord. He's the one who saves. Salvation is up to him. The implication is this. Many people will come at all different ages, and you encourage them to come. And many people will have morally upright lives. And many people will seem to be citizens of the kingdom. And yet, Jesus essentially says in this section, the proof is in the pudding. That's what he says to the young man. The young man said, I kept all these commandments. But Jesus says, the proof is in the pudding. So again, if we're going to apply these to children, we have to really say, on the one hand, yes, encourage them, pray for them. Teach the children, yes. But on the other hand, we also acknowledge salvation is of the Lord. That God's the one who saves. And so we look for evidence of conversion. Because that's what Jesus does here with the young man who comes to him. We look for fruit in keeping with repentance. See, as a side note, this is why historically Baptists waited to baptize children until they demonstrated fruit of conversion. Fruit of repentance. That they had been able to taste a bit of that temptation from the world. Like this young man who shows up. Who's a very morally upstanding person. And yet, Jesus tests him. He pushes on him. Well, let's test. Is there fruit in your life? Now, that's the first insight I'd say on this text. But a second point is this. Moving away from how the two interact. And now some insights in the passage. Did you notice Jesus' first response to this man is really strange? He shows up and says... Good teacher, you know, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus says, why do you call me good? That's a little strange, is it not? Why do you call me good? Do you see what Jesus is doing? The young man approaches, assuming he knows what the standard of goodness is. And Jesus questions his entire understanding of goodness. In other words, the very idea that there is such a thing as good assumes a standard. It assumes that there's a measurement Assumes there's a way to, to say, well, this is on the side of good and this is on the side of bad. But most people today are actually quite a bit like this young man. We assume that we innately know what goodness is and what badness is. We, we assume that we are 
arbiters, that we are able to adjudicate these things. But Jesus says there's only one measurement. There's only one way to test what's good. And that is God. There's only one that is God. The other gospel accounts make it clear. So if the standard of goodness is defined by God's character, then I'd be prepared to argue at great length that any other way that we go about trying to define what is good is really going to devolve into human subjectivity. It's going to devolve into me and what my preferences are for what's good. Or maybe it's my group, you know, me and my tribe, what we consider good. I'll, I'll, I'll give you an example of this. I was discussing this with, with a college student one time, and, and he said, you know, of course, all moral standards are subjective. Different groups, different cultures have their different standards. I said, are you sure about that? And he's like, yeah, of course. This is what sociology has taught us. Okay. So I pressed him. Well, what happens when two competing groups have two different sets of standards? What, what happens when, for example, um, we thought it was a great idea to enslave people. I don't think they thought it was such a great idea. So, so how do we determine whose good was right? At the end of the day, might makes right is essentially what he is saying. If he's going to be consistent and he was attempting to be consistent. And he actually went so far as to say, well, back then slavery was right, but now it's, now it's not because we've changed our culture. That's what you're left with. If you remove the eternal God as the standard of goodness, as the measuring rod, then everything else devolves into subjectivity. It devolves into how I feel or how my group feels. So if you're here today and you're not a Christian, then I would I want to ask you the same question that Jesus asked this young man. By what standard are you measuring your life? What standard are you using to assess your life? You see, in Portland, it's very common for people to say things like, I just want to be a good person. Well, the question is, what do you mean by good? What Good based off of what standard? And I'd love to talk to you further about that. If you've never even thought about this question, like, oh yeah, I guess I just assumed what good is. I'll stand in the hall afterwards. I'd love to talk with you more about that. But one other insight from this part of the text is, notice verses 18 and 19, Jesus gives him, he rattles off kind of a list of commandments. Uh, Sometimes they call this the second table of the Ten Commandments, which is why we read them earlier. But it's really the fifth through the ninth commandments. And then he, he does the second great one of love your neighbor as yourself. But the question comes, well, why did he skip one through four and number ten? And it seems like probably because those commandments are a little harder to test. Like it's it'd be much easier for this young man to know, like, I killed somebody. Uh, He's pretty confident he didn't do that. But Jesus leaves out the ones where this man thinks he has abided by them, but he hasn't. Because they're more internal. There's ways to get around them. So the first three commandments are essentially all about worshiping God. There's only one God. You don't make any images of him. You don't take his name in vain. Those are essentially your relationship to God, how you interact with him. And really, the problem was, this young man's worship was broken. That's what Jesus is going to press on, that he had an alternate savior, as it were. So these commandments are about worshiping God, but notice how subtle it is. He doesn't even realize it until Jesus has to like dig it out and uncover it a bit. And I would say that we have to be so careful in the realm of worship, because worship is one of those things that you can get off track so easily and not realize it. It's not like murder. It's not one of those obvious ones that you just see, oh, oops, I murdered somebody. Now, worship and false worship is a little different than that. So let me give you an example. I fear that much that passes for Christian music or Christian worship music 
is actually teaching people to break the first, second, and third commandments. Because here's the thing. If you sing to an ill-defined God, and if you picture him in a way that his word doesn't agree with, then you're taking his name in vain. You're ascribing to his name vanities. So there is much that passes for worship music. And there are many who lead people in saying, we're worshiping God, when really we're singing about nothing. Or we're singing about God falsely. That's why we take worship very seriously. Just because a song has Christianish lyrics or it moves us emotionally does not mean it is honoring to God. It very well might be dishonoring him. It might be causing you to worship God falsely. And that's the rich young man here. He's confronted with the reality that though he thought he was living an upstanding life and was perfectly honoring God, that in fact, his deepest love, his deepest desire and affection was on anything but God. It was on his possessions. Oh, it's grand that he never violated the fifth through the ninth commandments. Congratulations. But there's a deeper issue going on here. So we must be so careful with these types of commandments, the ones that aren't as easy to spot. And that's why we live in community. That's why we commit ourselves to a local church, because these are the types of sins that other people help us to root out. Again, you'll know if you murdered somebody, but you might not know if you're really putting your trust in something else functionally. And that's where people in your triads and in your community groups are saying, how are you doing? Lately, I've had some turmoil in in my own just life, and my wife so gently says, are you all right? I'm fine. No, you're not. Okay, I'm not fine. Are you trusting the Lord? No. You should probably do that. Yes. We need those people in our lives to help us see when our worship is off, when we're trusting in something other than God. And this drives us to the next reality of the story is that the impossibility of our salvation in our, if it's a left up to us. Look at verses 23 through 26. And Jesus said to his disciples, truly, I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished saying, who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. They were greatly astonished. You could actually probably render that. They were extremely overwhelmed. They were undone. Because Jesus just dropped a bomb on their worldview. In their mind, an upstanding Jewish person with money was demonstrating the blessedness the, the, the money was like a, a evidence that they were blessed, assuming they were upstanding. But Jesus says, no, absolutely not. He says, so hard is it that it's like a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Now, somebody was so offended by this that they changed the meaning. Maybe you've heard this explained this way, that the eye of a needle was a little gate uh, in the wall of Jerusalem and a camel, if it got off all of its stuff and it crawled down on its knees, it could like inch its way through the hole. That's totally bogus. That is completely ridiculous. And you know why it is because Jesus goes on to say, because with man this is impossible. He wasn't trying to do the princess brides like mostly dead, saying it's mostly impossible. No, it's completely, immutably impossible for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And that's the way it is. With man, 
Notice how Jesus emphasizes the man part. It's not the riches thing. Oh, yes, the riches compound the issue because it's so much easier to trust in those than it is to trust in Jesus. But the issue is with man. Salvation is impossible. No one is saved by what they do. But here's the thing. The moment we say that, we get a little uncomfortable because this idea that salvation has nothing to do with what we do and that there's nothing we can ever hope to do to get saved is very offensive. This is a doctrine known as unconditional election. That is that God chooses and saves us solely because of his mercy and grace. Not because of anything we've done. Not because of a a rhythm or a pattern or a, a special prayer. But because of his grace. Pastor Doug Wilson has said this. That we need to learn to think on and marvel and love this doctrine. Because it is easy for us to believe that we have some sort of claim on the grace of God. That God owes us an offer of salvation. That God owes us a way out of our sin. And Wilson says, God owes us nothing. See, as a matter of fact... The entire logic of salvation by grace is undone if you do anything other than, I would say, unconditional election. Because if there's any conditions, it's not grace. Grace, by definition, is undeserved favor. Salvation is God's work of grace. So it can never be turned into a requirement. It can never be turned into an ought. There'll never be a time when we're able to look at God and say, you owe me. That's not the gospel. And we know that because Jesus says it is impossible for man. There's nothing man can do. There's nothing we bring to the table. No one can ever make God be in their debt, as it were. So this realization is why we know that Jesus was not really telling the rich young man that if he sold everything and followed him, that would make him be saved. That's not what's going on there. Jesus says, if you, you want to be perfect, all right, sell everything. And follow me. You could translate that maybe if you want to be mature. But if you want to be perfect, sell everything and come and follow me. But his point is rooting out the fact the man's not going to do that. That's his true God. It'd be like casting off his real God. So all he's doing is showing him that if you are able to do that, then I've already saved you. I've already changed your life because then you worship me and not your money. You're trusting in me and not your money. So Jesus refuses the man to follow him, as a matter of fact. He won't be put alongside. Do you see that? Sometimes I think we have this idea that we just want to like get people to toe into the kingdom a little bit. Like if we can get them just to to put a toe in the kingdom, then maybe that'll help. And there certainly is wisdom in in letting people process through the gospel and, and walk them through it. But at the end of the day, the gospel is a very dichotomous message. Jesus says, you either worship that or you worship me. It's that simple. There's no other alternatives. He says, I save you entirely of my grace first to last, or else I can really have nothing to do with you. And if we're honest with ourselves, we get tempted to try and minimize that radical call to God. As Matt opened the service by saying, God reigns. Sometimes we have a tendency to want to, or a temptation to minimize just the extent of that reign. Well, God, can you reign over 90% of my life? Or maybe 82% of my life? In one place, D.A. Carson puts it like this. 
He says, I would like to buy about $3 worth of gospel, please. Not too much, just enough to make me happy, but not so much that I get addicted. I don't want so much gospel that I learn to really hate covetousness and lust. I certainly don't want so much that I start to love my enemies, cherish self-denial, and contemplate missionary service in some alien culture. I want ecstasy, not repentance. I want transcendence, not transformation. I would like to be cherished by some nice, forgiving, broad-minded people. But I myself don't want to love those from different races, especially if they smell. I would like enough gospel to make my family secure, my children well-behaved, but not so much that I find my ambitions redirected or my giving too greatly enlarged. I would like about $3 worth of gospel, please. But let's not overdo it. And then he goes on to say, of course, none of us are so crass as to ever put it like that. But we have all felt the temptation to opt for a domesticated version of the gospel, have we not? You see, friends, whenever we allow other functional saviors, and that's what this money was for this young man, his possessions, were functional saviors, those things that we functionally trust in to give us meaning and hope and joy and purpose. Whenever we do that, we're saying to Jesus, I'd like about $3 worth of gospel, please, but let's not overdo it. But Bonhoeffer has well said, that's not the way it works. Because when Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. So friends, what, what might God be calling you to die to? Maybe like the rich young ruler, the rich young man, as it is here in Matthew, that it's trust in possessions or wealth. Maybe it's security and comfort. Maybe it's a particular relationship or the desire for a particular relationship. Whatever that other thing is, unless you're willing to lose it, you may not be following Jesus like you think you are. Because Jesus calls us to come and die. And to prove that his call is sometimes this extreme, that it goes this far, we have the last section, the disciples and the inheritance, verse 27 through 30. And then Peter said in reply, see, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or children, or lands for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first not surprisingly, it's Peter who speaks up and decides to ask the question that the others are probably thinking. Remember, this is the same Peter who, a few chapters back, was the first one to, to speak up and get the great, the great applause. That's not from you. Clearly, that's, that's the Father who has given you this. My Father's revealed it. And so, a scene later, Peter's still feeling his Wheaties, and he, he decides to speak up again, and Jesus responds with, get behind me, Satan. Uh, so, Peter's the one who clearly has to ask this question. There's no, there's no other way around it. And he's, well, what about us? What about us? What do we get? We've left everything. Now, he's being a bit hyperbolic because we know that he had a wife, so he didn't clearly leave everything. Uh, But you get the idea. They had clearly sacrificed for the Lord, and Jesus' response comes in two parts. The first part is a response just to the twelve, and then the second part is a response to all the rest of us who would be disciples through their ministry and through the word. Now, there are many questions about this first one. What does it mean for the 12 to sit on 12 thrones and to judge Israel? There are all sorts of views. 
on this. And none of them are like watertight. So I'll give you what I think is the best, the best explanation is that Jesus is saying when it comes to the judgment, when he comes that the 12 will have a special role in judging ethnic Israel and particularly those who reject Jesus as Messiah, that they will have that kind of a role. I'm not going to die for that interpretation, but I think that's, that's what it, it means. That's the simplest one. Some of the other examples just don't quite make sense to me. But an interesting part, rather, that I do want to focus on in his response is he says this, in the new world, uh, you might have a footnote in, in your ESV, which says a wooden literal translation might say, in the regeneration. Because that word is only used twice in, in the whole New Testament here and in Titus 3. And in Titus 3, it's specifically speaking of regeneration, that is being born again, when someone is taken from death and brought into life. So what's interesting here is that Jesus uses that word, we, we see a connection taking place, even in Jesus' thought, is that while God's plan of redemption is first and foremost that he sent the Son to redeem a people for his name, he also will be redeeming creation. And we saw this in Romans 8, did we not? We said creation groans. It longs, it waits for redemption. And Jesus uses that language here, that there will be a redemption of all things. And Jesus says that our ultimate inheritance is bound up with that redemption, with the redemption of all things, with the new heavens and the new earth. What's interesting, though, and this means that the young man was asking exactly the right question. How do I inherit eternal life? He was so close He was asking the right question. He knew what I really need to worry about, what I really need to bend my life around is then. It's the new Jerusalem. Jesus, how? How? That is exactly the right question. But sadly, we are far too often bound up with the here and the now, are we not? It it, it seems so ethereal and kind of out there. You maybe add to that some really weird science fiction books that passed as Christian fiction, you know, in the 90s about how all the end's going to happen. And unfortunately, just some of us responded by saying, I just don't want to think about that. But I don't think that's helpful. Jesus says the right question is for the hope of Christians is the new Jerusalem. It's the new heaven. It's the new earth. Now, you also may have noticed that Jesus specifically says all those who leave those things for his name will receive 100-fold. And that has to mean in this life because he says, and eternal life. So he promises there'll be something here. What do we do with that? Well, it, it will not do to claim what the prosperity preachers have often done and say that Jesus means that everyone will prosper in this life. Jesus is going to die naked and alone. So are many of his disciples. That, that cannot be what it is. One scholar has noted well, says, God is no man's debtor. If one of Jesus' disciples has, for Jesus' sake, left, say, father or mother, he will find within the messianic community, we would say within the church, a hundred who will be to him as a father, who will be to him as a mother or brothers or sisters. I'm sure some of you have experienced that. Is it in the church you find your true family, as it were? There will always be a part of you that will, will be more tied to these people than to sometimes even your closest family. So part of our inheritance, in other words, is found here in the church, in the relationships, in the home that we have together, as it were. In the church, we receive a hundredfold brothers and sisters. In the church, we are those who oftentimes 
are the first to enter in are the ones who the world thinks the last of. The first will be last. The last first. So the challenge, though, of this list we have to deal with. Because Jesus says people are going to leave homes and father, mother, sisters, brothers, children, lands. What do we do with that? That's a scary list, if we're being honest. I fear that we read this list too quickly, and we think that's for those people over there. I fear we read this passage, and we say, yep, some people are going to do that. But we never pause and say, maybe the Lord would have me do that. See, each of those things are losses which will be felt deeply. In fact, most secular therapy and counseling will tell you that these are the kinds of losses that Jesus lists here that will ruin you for life. And yet Jesus says, this is going to happen of those who follow me. Some will experience this. And they will willingly leave these things behind for his name. And I'm sure some of you are here this morning, and you have. And you feel those losses. That your willingness to follow Jesus, to trust in him alone, has cost you brothers or sisters. Has cost you friends. Has cost you deep relationships. That's a reality we have to wrestle with, and that's why we have to look for healing and reward and inheritance even in the church, Jesus is saying here. But this also reminds us that we need to honor our missionaries because of those who are willing to leave so much and go to serve. We think of James prayed for the Hugos. They'll be here next month. I hope some of you will join us as they come, and they're going to share about their ministry in South Africa. Obviously, pray for uh, the Winslows over there in India and pray for Alan and Ginny as they're on their trip and, and many others. And that's why we have the voice of the martyrs. Pray for the persecuted church. Pray for those and the many who have given up so much to follow Jesus. Now, one other thing just practically is that last week we had Virgil here. And Virgil is getting ready to go plant a church. And I would say all of us have to at least be willing to stop and ask would the Lord have us go? Would the Lord call us to go and join this new work? We have to at least stop and ask the question. Otherwise, it's almost like we're pretending that this text could not apply to us. So I'd say, friends, be willing to pray. Is the Lord calling you to go? To experience some losses? To help Virgil with the church plant in North Portland? In the midst of this counting the cost, Jesus says that all of our comfort and our security, and our gain, or our loss in this life, will be gain in the next. It is our first thought of this, that, that we, we tend to only think of the loss now rather than the gain then, and he's trying to shift our perspective and look to the reward, to look to the end, that we have that kind of reward. So let me illustrate what I think he's getting at here as he's wrestling through this idea of how do, you, how do you wrestle with the losses which are real and the pain and sorrow and yet also acknowledge that there's going to be something so much greater later. Here's a story from my perverse youth pastor stunt days. But many years ago, I'd run these day camps and, and we would do a, a lock-in and we'd do like mafia in the dark. And if any of you, the young people probably know what that is. And so we, we'd lock everyone in in the, the auditorium where we were at had no windows. And so it was really dark in there, like pitch black. And I would call all the kids up and they'd be right around here. And I would have snuck in my professional camera flash and they would be fully charged. And I would close my eyes and go like this. And I'd fire off that flash. Now, if you've never been in a pitch black room and been staring right at a camera flash, it will cause paroxysms of rage. Uh, 
it, it will cause howling. It will, it will cause all pain sometimes. You know, looking back, it probably wasn't a very good thing to do. Um, but at the time, I thought it was pretty funny. Uh, I mean, for, for, for minutes and minutes and long time, people are still complaining. I still had bright spots in my eyes. And... But then the next day, I would take them out to a field. And in the middle of the field, with the sun at high noon, shining around, I'd say, come here, I want to show you something. And I'd hold up that same flash, and I'd fire it again. It's a blink. I mean, you see it. It doesn't hurt. It doesn't stop you in your tracks. It's there, and it's gone a second later. Friends, I think here's what Jesus is getting at. Is that I'm sure for many today, following Jesus is cost. And it's going to cost you more. And it could be like that flash going off in the dark room but so much worse that it hurts that it shocks you and yet i would say is that what jesus is saying is that if you will fix your eyes on the new jerusalem if you will fix your eyes on what he's doing now in the church on the inheritance you have now here with these people and they can help you to point you again and again and again to the new jerusalem the losses we have oh we'll feel them but they'll be like a flash in the middle of a field on a sunny day. They're here and they're gone because there's so much more for us here and now. And this suffering that we are called to endure now is possible because Jesus suffered first. You see, he's going to be abandoned by these same guys who ask these questions. This same disciple who's asking him, what were we going to get, is one who denies him three times. In Matthew 27, 45, he hangs on the tree, as I said, naked, He has nothing. His clothes have been auctioned off. And worse than that, he's even abandoned by his father. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, friends, Jesus knows what it is to suffer loss, to look ahead to the reward. And that's what we are called to here. So if you find yourself this morning realizing that you've been consumed by other functional saviors, and maybe the, uh, one of them is yourself and your need to do something. You're, you're feeling you always have to do more. Or maybe it's the feeling of realizing you've only ever been wanting $3 worth of gospel. To all of those and everyone in between, Jesus calls this morning and says, I suffered first. He says, it is finished because of what I have done. And friend, you will find that there's always more grace in Christ than there is sin in you. So turn to Jesus. This is why his answer, and this is why these two passages are not something completely different. Because what we are being called to do is to trust him with childlike faith, with total dependence, to rest on him and his completed work, and that he is enough. Amen? Please pray with me.